beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Elora this morning. If it is your practice to read through the Bible from beginning to the end, you will have noticed that the narratives given in the book of Kings are often repeated in the book of the Chronicles, and we saw that this morning. We read, for instance, two very similar accounts, one in Kings and the other from Chronicles, both about Manasseh, son of Hezekiah. And if you've ever wondered about the similarity and the differences between First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, perhaps it's helpful for you to know that the word Chronicles in the Greek is literally translated as an account of the things that were omitted, an account of the things that were omitted. And that's what we have here this morning. We read of the same narrative, both in Second Kings and in Second Chronicles, but Chronicles gives us the things that were omitted in Second Kings. Follow with me. We've read this morning of the history of Manasseh, king of Judah, Manasseh was the son of Hezekiah, and he reigned as king in Judah for for 45 years, about 700 years before Jesus came into the world. His reign was the longest of any of the kings of Judah, but unlike his father before him, Manasseh led Judah into a variety of idolatrous practices. And that information is given us in both one and both in 2 Kings 21 and in the parallel narrative in 2 Chronicles 33. In other words, in his younger years, he was not a godly man. Not only was he apostate spiritually, but he also, we read, he also killed many innocent people in Jerusalem, apparently including the prophets who forecast disaster for Judah because of Manasseh's idolatry. According to some later traditions, Isaiah was among his victims. The portrayal of Manasseh's reign in 2 Kings is unvaryingly negative, and Judah's ultimate destruction is repeatedly blamed on Manasseh. The version presented in 2 Chronicles, however, although still very critical of him, does not attach the blame, that blame specifically to him. But what we want to look at in particular this morning is the turning of this wicked man. And that's why we read both of the accounts. You see, although the book of Kings gives us his terrible apostasy, it does not give us Manasseh's repentance as Chronicles does. Manasseh's ungodliness is given us in Kings, and although Chronicles doesn't deny his terrible rebellion and his apostasy, what Chronicles also gives us is what was omitted in the book of Kings, and what was omitted is the fact that Manasseh returned to the Lord. Manasseh's complete history then, people of God, is that because of his unfaithfulness to the Lord, the Lord brought calamity upon him and upon his kingdom, his nation. He was taken in chains to Babylon, but while he was there, he turned to the Lord. The Lord then returned him to his kingdom, and upon his return to Jerusalem, Manasseh puts an end to the idolatry Uh, there as evidence of his repentance and his history closes with and he rested with his fathers meaning he died in the Lord my dear people of God what tremendous comfort is given us here to parents who mourn over their prodigal sons and daughters 
We read here of a young man raised in a pious, godly home. He was the son of Hezekiah, who was given us in Scripture as one of the three most perfect kings of Judah. But his son, the child of these pious parents, strayed from the paths of righteousness, and his father's heart would, would have been broken. But, 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 but the Lord... But the Lord did not leave his child alone. In his time and in his way, the Lord interrupted Manasseh on his own road to destruction. The Lord drew him unto himself, and now Manasseh could say with the psalmist in Psalm 118, Praise be to God. I will not die, but I will live, and I will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And now our text of this morning speaks of these things, and I want to administer God's words. You're using as my theme, a man ripe for repentance. A man ripe for repentance. We will first of all see a man who sinned against God, who then experienced the judgments of God, and who then was led to repentance as a result of the judgments of God. A man ripe for repentance who sinned against God, experienced the judgments of God, and repented as consequence of the judgments of God. People of God, Manasseh was a polytheist, meaning thereby that he worshipped many gods. And by his worship of false gods, he, of course, sinned against the one and only true God. Oh, he worshipped or he pretended to worship the one true God, but he also worshipped other gods. That was the source of his sin, for God insisted we worship him and him alone. Things haven't changed much, have they? All these many centuries later, men and women are still following the pattern of Manasseh. Still today, all of those outside of the church and even many inside the church worship other gods. Still today, there are many even among church members who profess to worship the God whom Christ revealed, but they still have their idols. Oh, they have no idols made of sticks and stones, and their idols are much more subtle. Some worship money. Some are like those of whom Paul said, their God is their belly. There are those who worship at the shrine of entertainment and pleasure. For some, their God is alcohol or drugs or immoral behavior but my dear people of God when a man is ruled by any of these any of these things he's not a biblical theist but he is a polytheist as Manasseh was he may profess to worship the one true God but he also has other gods and his life is ruled not by the Lord but by these other gods and as Jesus said no one <coughs> can serve two masters and so we need to understand that although the idols of today may be different from the idols of Manasseh, they are no less offensive to the Lord. Modern idols are as surely a stench in the nostrils of our God and an abomination in the sight of the Lord as were the Molochs and the Baal gods worshipped in the Old Testament time. And so Manasseh sinned against God, and he did so over a period of many years. Perhaps he thought he could do that with impunity, he may have come to think that he could sin against the Lord and get away with it. He was raised in a godly home, and so he would have known better. But perhaps he thought he could flaunt God's commandments without paying the price. But it is forever true, people of God, that one will reap just what he sows. 
God always brings the sinner to judgment. And my dear people of God, that is still true today. God will deal with your sin. And when God fails to bring judgment to bear immediately upon the sin in our lives, it's only because he is long-suffering and patient, God wanting that all men should come to repentance. But although he is long-suffering, although he is patient, his patience is not without limits. And in the case of Manasseh, the long-suffering of God came to an end one day. You see, in the case of Manasseh, according to the text, God finally withdrew his protective care. Manasseh may not have realized that his nation could exist only as long as God's protective arms were stretched about it. Perhaps perhaps his, pl- his, his pride blinded him to the fact that he could sit upon the throne in Judah only as long as God upheld him. But he learned those facts through a bitter experience when God withdrew his providential care. You know the story. We read it this morning. God permitted the armies of the enemy to sweep down upon him, and Manasseh and many of his people were led away into captivity. And my dear people of God, we need to understand this. We need to understand this for what God does here is not consistent with what most people, even some Christian people, think of God. You see, God here actually intentionally brings great hardship upon his own people and upon their king. God actually empowers the unbelieving world to conquer the church. And that seems inconceivable to us. God is a God of love, is he not? Of course he is. The Bible is replete with that information, but we need to understand that sometimes discipline is the most loving thing that can be done for a person. (laughs) When parents truly love their children, they don't hesitate to discipline them. A church that truly loves her sheep exercises discipline when they stray. And because, because God loves his people, he disciplines them collectively as a church and individually as people. And that's what we see here. In love, God gives his chosen nation, along with their king, into the hands of the hated pagan Assyrians. And what indignities were heaped upon Manasseh and his people are not detailed in the record, but it was common practice to place a ring through the nose or the lips of the prisoner to lead them around as if they were animals. The captives could only expect inhumanity and brutality. God used a foreign, unbelieving nation to bring his judgment to bear upon Manasseh. And my dear people of God, we need to be careful that we don't miss the point here. If we were to ask at this point, why? Why did God bring this terrible judgment into the life of Manasseh? If you were to answer to punish Manasseh for his sin, you would be only partially right. God did indeed take Manasseh to task for his sin and his sinful life, but but, but God had a far larger purpose in, in mind by visiting Manasseh with captivity and torture. You see, people of God, it was the purpose of God. It was the purpose of God to make Manasseh, what? To make Manasseh repent, to repent. God had called Manasseh and his people to repentance over and over and over again, but they would not listen. And now God brought a frightening experience into their lives in order to bring them, in order to bring them back unto himself. 
You see, God did not abandon them. No, they failed miserably in their required obedience. Manasseh especially had very pious parents, but he had turned aside from their wisdom. And Manasseh and his nation, they had the law and the prophets, but but they stopped up their ears. And after they repeatedly failed to listen to God speaking through the voice of parents and through the voice of the prophets, then God spoke to them through calamity. Being overrun and taken captive by the enemy was simply another means of God speaking to them. It was another way of God calling them. It was another way of God calling them to repent. God's terrible judgment upon Manasseh did not mean that God was through with him or that God had cut him off or that God would leave him to eternal condemnation. Oh, no, it meant meant precisely the opposite. You see, God loved Manasseh. God loved Manasseh enough to punish him and to thereby drive him to repentance of his sin. People of God, remember with me now that Manasseh was a member of the Old Testament church. Despite all of his sin, he was a member of the visible institutional church. But more than that, precisely because God worked this terrible judgment upon Manasseh, I believe it's safe to conclude that Manasseh, because of God's treatment of him and because of the testimony we have concerning him after the captivity, Scripture leads us to conclude that Manasseh was a part of the body of true believers, which is known only to God. In other words, precisely because of the judgment of God, we may believe that he was numbered among the saints of God from all eternity. God had Manasseh's name engraved on the palm of his hand, and therefore the Lord would not and the Lord could not let him go. Had it not been so, God might well have allowed him to go on in his sin until there was nothing left but eternal condemnation, destruction, and punishment. But but, but God loved him, and God loved him enough to punish him, to call him back out of his sin. So what are we to learn from all of this? It's an interesting story, but what will be the reason that the Holy Spirit included this narrative in Scripture Well, a number of lessons are to be found here, people of God. First of all, we learn that it is God. It is God and not man who is the author of repentance. I want to repeat that. God is the author of repentance. Oftentimes, after a bad experience, we will hear someone say, Boy, boy, I sure learned my lesson. How much better for us to say, Boy, God sure taught me a lesson. You see, repentance is is impossible apart from the working of God. Saul of Tarsus was not seeking Christ on the Damascus road. No, Christ was seeking Saul. If God is the author and the finisher of our faith, then God must also be the author of our repentance when we sin. And therefore, we must thank God whenever there is within us a desire to repent of our sin. We need to remember to give God the glory when we're sorry for our sin, for it is God's working in us, that first of all. Second, we learn that God demands repentance for sin. God loved Manasseh. God did not stop loving Manasseh for one moment. He chastised Manasseh precisely because he loved him. If there had been any other way, God would not have brought this terrible judgment upon Manasseh But there was no other way. 
Manasseh had sinned. Manasseh must repent or be eternally lost. God wanted Manasseh saved. He had determined that already in eternity, and therefore God worked judgment upon Manasseh. And so when we sin, people of God, therefore we must also repent. Third, because sin must be followed by repentance, God leads his children to repent. Sometimes his leading is gentle and persuasive as when the Holy Spirit speaks softly within within our human heart. But sometimes God's leading is harsh. Sometimes God's leading is painful and bitter. When we refuse to be led by gentler methods, then God adopts methods which are harsh. And my dear precious saints of God, if you have come to learn that biblical principle, then you have learned to pray daily, Oh God, grant me the necessary grace to follow thy leading, lest it should be necessary to crush me in order to mold me and to make me after thy will. God does not always lead men into captivity and slavery. Sometimes he uses other painful methods, but whatever the method, God will lead his children to repentance. People of God, the entire episode from the life of Manasseh stands as a solemn warning to every child of God. If you are a child of God, God loves you, that is certain. If you are a child of God, he will hang on to you and not let you go. That is also certain and encouraging. But but, but at the same time, if you are a child of God, because you are a child of God, you must know that God may find it necessary to bring harsh judgments into your life. If you will persist in sinning against his will, and if you will learn your lesson in no other way, God will use whatever means necessary to bring you to your knees in repentance, even if it means causing disaster to fall upon your life. But there's more here. Beyond these lessons, there is a lesson concerning the nature of repentance. You see, when God works repentance, it is true repentance. And using the example of Manasseh, we see it consists in three steps. First of all, we read, he entreated or he sought the Lord. We read in verse 12 that when he was in in affliction, he implored or he entreated or he sought the Lord. Oh, how differently he acted from so many men and women, even Christian men and women today. What Manasseh did was the exact opposite of many men who, having illness or tragedy or death in their homes, Manasseh experienced great tragedy, and the first thing he sensed was a need for the Lord. And so we read, he went to God. How different for so many people. People of God, throughout all of my ministry, when there was a death in in one of my congregations, It was always my custom to clear my desk and to write a sermon, to preach a sermon on the Sunday immediately following, a sermon which would bring words of comfort and cheer to the entire congregation, but especially to those family members who had been so greatly afflicted by the death. But in one of the churches I served, when tragedy struck, it was the custom of the grieving families 
to absent themselves from the church rather than coming to it. And when I tried to gently talk to them about that later on, the argument was something about not being ready to face the congregation. And my dear people, God, that is something I could never understand. When tragedy comes, that is precisely when we should come to the house of God more fervently and more often. In those times when tragedy strikes, we are so vulnerable and, and, and we are in more need than at any other time in our lives. When in such times of great need, when we remove ourselves, we absent ourselves from the house of God, we remove ourselves from the very presence of God himself. Oh, but not so for Manasseh. When calamity struck, we read, he implored the Lord. Or as an older, perhaps better translation has it, he sought the Lord. And my dear people of God, we can certainly pray to God at home, but he has promised us to grace us with his presence when under the discipline of his word in the Sunday worship service. That's where we need to seek and find him. Secondly, according to the text, Manasseh, humbled himself greatly, we read. And that, too, is very different procedure than many of us follow. How few there are, like the publican of old, who dared not lift his eyes to heaven, but beating upon his breast, he cried out, God, oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Oh, how hard it is for us to humble ourselves before the Lord and to confess our sin. The common approach to sin for the Christian is to mumble the words and forgive us our sins. Amen. I have heard many men and women praying seemingly endless prayers without a single reference to sin or confession or repentance. And then almost as an afterthought, conclude the prayer by, with the words, forgive us our sins. Amen. People of God, that's not repentance. That's not repentance at all. It seems to say that the forgiveness of sins is a small thing, lightly to be asked and lightly to be accomplished. But the forgiveness of sins, my dear people of God, the forgiveness of sins was not a little thing to God. It cost him his only begotten son. So that when Manasseh repented, he sought the Lord and he humbled himself before God. And finally we read, and he prayed. He prayed. The evidence of his repentance then is to seek God, to greatly humble ourselves through the medium of prayer. This speaks of the eternal consequences of prayer, my dear precious people of God. Capture this with me. The concept is so important. Too many people think only of the temporal consequences of prayer. They are ill, they pray for health, they have heartaches, they pray for release. They lose their job. They pray for employment. They fear death. They pray for life. But the great power in prayer is not what it will accomplish for time, but what it accomplishes for eternity. The great power in prayer, people of God, lies in what is accomplished when a soul is forgiven and reconciled to God. Now capture also with me the results of Manasseh's repentance. First of all, God heard and God received him. When Manasseh cried out to God, God heard and God answered him. It had been God. It had been God who had brought these judgments upon him so that he would call upon the name of the Lord. And when he did, 
God was waiting for him. It's hard for us not to think here in this context of the prodigal son. Did we not see the father there with his arms wide open waiting to receive his son again? So to hear. Second, the Lord heard his cry and the Lord removed his burden. That is to say, Manasseh was released from his captivity and he was restored to his kingdom. When the purposes of God were accomplished, there was no longer any reason to continue his affliction. The purpose of the affliction was to make Manasseh ripe for repentance. And so when the captivity caused Manasseh to repent and the purposes of God were accomplished, God removed the affliction. But, 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 my dear people of God, the best, the best was yet to come. The best was yet to come. We read Manasseh, Manasseh knew the Lord. He knew that the Lord was God, we read. In other words, Manasseh ceased to be a polytheist. Manasseh ceased to worship false gods. Manasseh now finally gave God his proper due and his unique place of honor and glory. The false gods were abandoned and the one true God of all glory was embraced and worshipped. Manasseh knew that the Lord was God and he now gives to God his proper place of sovereign glory and majesty. And people of God, at this point, we would be inclined to end the story with, and they all lived happily ever after. Manasseh was now a proper servant of God, and in turn, the Lord had restored Manasseh to the throne of Judah. That's how all good stories are supposed to end. They all lived happily ever after. But unfortunately, this is not the end of the story. Oh, Manasseh, he did. He did live happily ever after. In glory. As far as the record indicates, Manasseh remained true to God for as long as he lived, and God permitted Manasseh to remain upon the throne of Judah for the rest of his life. One might say it appears that they all did live happily ever after. And if the story ended with the death of Manasseh, that would be the correct conclusion. <clears throat> but the story does not end with the death of Manasseh. No. After Manasseh died, his son Amon ascended to the throne of Judah. But his record starts off the same as his father's. We read he sinned as his father had done before him. But with this difference, the record states that Amon did not humble himself and did not repent of his sin as his father had, but that he sinned more and more. He reigned in Judah only two years serving false gods and serving idols until he was killed in a conspiracy against them. Here now is the end of the story, and a sobering end it is, people of God. It holds a final lesson for us, for all those who will learn it, and that lesson is this. God will surely forgive the sins of the truly penitent, but at the same time, the consequence of sin are never truly fully wiped out. And one of the saddest facts concerning sin is that the consequence of sin are often found in the lives of the sinner's children. And that's what we see here. Long after Manasseh was gone, the consequence of his sin lived on in the life of his son. What a heart-searching lesson for parents. You may sin, 
And if by the grace of God you are led to repentance, you will be forgiven. But the consequence of your sinful life may well live on in the lives of your children, your grandchildren, and even your great-grandchildren, as we read in the law this morning, to the third and fourth generation. And I believe that's a truth which is neither preached upon nor emphasized sufficiently. Though sin may be forgiven, the consequences often live on. What a heart-searching lesson for us as parents. When children stray and wander from the Lord, could it be that they have learned that behavior from our example? Could it be that in the time when our children were the most impressionable, that we ourselves were careless in our commitment to God and we were insufficiently cognizant of the consequences that might have upon the sons and daughters who follow us? Parents, how, parents, how have you lived before God during the time that your children look to you as a role model? How was your commitment to God? How was your commitment to the church and to the kingdom of God? How did you demonstrate that to your children? Could your children see in you that for you, God was the only true God? Could your children see in you and did they know from you that you love the church of Christ and the kingdom of God? My dear people, God, how many parents have not cried themselves to sleep on so many occasions wishing they could have another chance at raising their children. If you have failed your children spiritually and if you have repented of that, then by the grace of God you will be forgiven in your failure towards them. But know that the consequence of your sin may live on in the lives of your children, perhaps to the third and fourth generation. My dear parents, I think it's fair and honest to say that for many pastors, the greatest disappointment, the greatest burden and disappointment of their ministry, and I include myself in this, the greatest disappointment in my ministry is to see parents who assumed that their children would turn out, out okay without hard work, true humility, and fervent, unceasing prayer on the part of mom and dad. How often do we not see parents closing their eyes to the sins of their children, confidently, confidently claiming it's only a phase? Parents and also grandparents, we need to learn by example. And above all, we should be much on our knees, not only to seek forgiveness for sins of the past, but to plead with God that the consequence of our sin would not live on in the lives of our children, not only in time, but for eternity. But the opposite is also true. When we as parents, when we honor our covenant obligations towards our children, then we may trust and believe that God also will honor his covenant promise to us and to our children. We saw that again in this morning in the words of our text. Amen. Shall we pray? Let children hear the mighty deeds which God performed of old, which in our younger years we saw and which our fathers told. He bids us to make his glories known, the works of power and grace, that we are to convey his wonders down through every rising race. Our lips shall tell them to our sons and they again to theirs, and generations yet unborn must teach them to their heirs. Thus, they shall learn 
in God alone to trust. Their hope securely stands that they may not forget his work, but honor his commands. Amen. For our song of application, would you turn with me to Psalm 78, and we'll use stanza two.